Good morning. Good to be here with you today. My name is Peter, one of the pastors here. Glad to have you joining us from every place, whether it's a mission site, online, or in person today. If you've been to my house, you've probably met my dog. Her name is Rory. She's got this magnificent brindle coat, just this beautiful coloration. Uh, She sits like a human. It's really kind of funny to watch. She's got these like high heels when she sits down. She's uh, awkwardly regal. That's kind of what I say, awkwardly regal. But she's our dog, and we love her. And she's been with us since she was a puppy, so six years now. And when we first got her, we did some crate training, kind of like this right here, a kennel. Some crate training. The idea is you place the dog in the crate and they quickly identify this as their safe place. Plus, there's the added benefit that they learn not to poop and pee all over the house. Just a bonus. Well, night after night, since she was just a few weeks old, like you see how little she was? She was so cute. Oh, my goodness. She's now like this. It doesn't matter. But... Night after night, we'd place her in a crate like this. We'd shut the gate, lock the door, and she was there. She was safe. She was secure. She was able to go to sleep for bedtime and come back the next morning, and sure enough, there she is. Well, we did this for months until we were confident that she was sufficiently housebroken and she wouldn't just pee all over the house or anything like that. I'll tell you, now she's older, she sleeps in our room, there's no need for a crate, nothing like that. But there were still times, even just a couple years ago, where we'd go away for an extended period of time during the day, and we would set her up in the crate, like we normally would, place her in there, shut the door, lock it, and make sure she was in. But I got to thinking. I was curious. Now that she was older and bigger and smarter... Was she staying in the crate because she was locked in? Or was she staying in the crate simply because she thought she was locked in? So, if you know me, you know I decided to run a little experiment. Like we normally did, one day I had a meeting, I had to go for a while, so I set her in the crate and I shut the door. And I even let the door handle hit. So she would hear the noise, but I didn't actually latch it shut. And then I went on to my meeting. A few hours go by. My wife, Grace, gets home later. Guess who's still in her crate? Hold that thought. In the 1970s, there was a popular slogan that went a little something like, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Anyone remember that line? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, it's actually resurfaced again thanks to a book by the same title published a few years back by a former prisoner named Christopher J. Scarver. And drawing on insights from his own 27 years of incarceration, Scarver speaks to different changes that he believes are necessary to reform the prison system in America to prevent minds from going to waste behind bars. And what struck me in preparation for today's messages, Scarver isn't the first former prisoner to have something to say about a mind being a terrible thing to waste. I'll show you what I mean. The Apostle Paul is going to make that exact same point in Philippians chapter 4 today. Please turn there with me. Philippians chapter 4. We'll be digging deep into just a single verse today. Paul begins by saying in verse 8, finally. Finally. Which means we can't start here, can we? 
There's a whole bunch of other really important things he said that we've got to go back and see. You can't start at the end of the book. Let's go back. Verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. As we've discussed the last few weeks, Paul is exhorting us here to demonstrate what we ended up calling a gracious stability. Gracious stability, this, like a swan, right, gliding across the surface of the water. That in the midst of whatever chaos may exist in our world, rather than being torn up over it, we exhibit a sense of equilibrium in the midst of it all. How? Well, verse 5 continues, the Lord is near. And because the Lord is near, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present or pray your requests to God. So just as the swan kind of glides along with such grace, and yet underwater its feet are frantically going, paddling, trying to stay above water. In the same way, we may not know what the future holds, but we can entrust ourselves to the one who holds the future. And verse 7 says... And we'll find that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So in this way, by review, we make our gentleness known to all, our our cries for help known to God, and we discover that the peace of God holds us tighter than anything else in this world. And so as a result... We are then invited to rethink. That's the name of the series we've been in. It's the series we're continuing in today. Rethink. Because if we do not take time to rethink, we will find ourselves trapped in prisons of our own making. But if we learn and if we desire to be free... Freed from anxiety's hold on us, freed from the pain of the past, freed from the uncertainty of the future, then we're going to have to pick it up from verse 8 and see what Paul has to say to us. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, watch this, think about such things things. Rethink, yes, but rethink what? He tells us, whatever is. Whatever is. See, Paul invites us out of the prisons that we find ourselves in, the prisons that entrap our minds by giving us a command. Really, it's an invitation to think about whatever is. Not whatever was, Not whatever will be, but what whatever is. What he's saying is choose your focus. Write that down. Etch that into the tablet of your heart. Choose your focus. You can focus on what was in the past or you could focus on what will be in the future. Or we could learn to choose our focus on what is. Easy in theory. Much harder to apply in real life. Quick show of hands. Who here tends to be a whatever was kind of person? 
Who tends to get stuck thinking and overthinking on things that have happened in the past? Nurturing old wounds, having hard con- the hard conversations you had, the frustrating turns of events. Anyone else? Am I alone up here? Okay. Are you a whatever was person? I'll tell you, sometimes I get stuck in what was. But generally speaking, I'm more of a whatever will be kind of a guy. What could go wrong? How things uh, could have been better or could be better? Uh, Imagining scenarios play out before they do and having entire conversations in my head with people before those conversations are even required or necessary. Anyone else? Just, okay, great. I feel understood. (laughs) Thank you. Paul says the first way to ensure that we are not being trapped in our minds is to get our minds off of what was and what will be and learn to choose to focus instead on what is. Jesus said the very same thing, Matthew 6.34. He says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Corey Ten Boom, the Holocaust survivor, famously summarized it like this. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but today of its strength. It's amazing how much we miss when we miss this. Paul says it's time to rethink. To choose our focus, not on what was, not on what will be, but on what is. And so the follow-up is, okay, what is? Is that it? Just what is? Well, he gives it to us. Verse 8 again. He says, finally, my brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Let me try to frame this for a second. Paul's given us the invitation to rethink, right? How? Well, first he gives us the scope of the command. Think about whatever is. And now he gives us a filter, a grid. He says, not, if it's not in accordance with these eight values, these eight qualities, if it's not true, if it's not noble, if it's not right and pure and lovely and so on, then don't think about it. Don't dwell on it. Don't ponder it, don't mull it over, don't let it in because it will ruin you. What he's saying is use your filter. Use your filter. Think about an HVAC system, right, the the HVAC in your house. The scope of the system is to heat and cool your home, right? Not your neighbor's house, your house. Dad always told me, shut the door. Uh, I'm not paying to heat the neighborhood, right? We're heating the house. That's the scope. But then Paul's like, there's one more piece. You need the filter. Why? Because the filter exists to ensure the quality of the air in your house is good for the system and good for you. In case you're wondering how seriously I take my sermon illustrations, I literally sat down face-to-face with uh, an HVAC specialist in our congregation to confirm that I was using this correctly. (laughs) So how do we ensure a healthy mind? How do we ensure a healthy mind? Paul gives us an eight-part filter. And we're going to take a look at each one quickly and talk about how practical this is. First, is it true? Is it true? 
It is not rare to hear the term fake news these days. And you know it's become a problem when the most reliable person on the news is the weatherman. We're in bad shape. We are used to being lied to. And so we've got our guards up. Is it true? That's Paul's first question. When when rumors are shared, as juicy as they might be, or accusations are made as passionate as they might seem, or statements are declared as charismatic as they might be preached, our first filter has got to be, yeah, but is it true? If it's not, don't let it in. Don't give it room to grow. Don't let it take root. Second, is it noble? Noble here is uh, another word meaning heroic or honorable. The, ro- the, the root of this word in the Greek actually delves into the realm of devotion. Someone who is devoted. Think about the hero who sticks with it even when everyone else falls away. Like in Lord of the Rings, I think about uh, not the warrior Gimli or uh, the elf Legolas, but it's the meager hobbit Samwise Gamgee who would not let his friend carry the burden of the ring alone. That's noble. Noble, heroic, is the husband who, who told me that he prays to God daily that he outlives his wife by at least one day. This way he will have fulfilled his promise to take care of her every day of her life. That's devotion. That's heroic. That is noble. Third, is it right? Now it's worth noting the word here that's translated as right could actually be better translated as the word just, meaning justice. Paul seems to be dealing here less with a personal sense of right and wrong and more about a society's acceptance of ethics and justice. I believe Paul is saying, think about the things that are in line with how the world was meant to be. See, it is good to ponder human flourishing. It is good to ponder how our world can be improved for the good of all especially in and ultimately in accordance with the kingdom that Christ is building and the government that rests on his shoulders. Fourth, is it pure? Is it pure? Say my wife and I are watching a movie. Good movie up until, you know, the scene turns a little, you get it. Know what I do? I look away. Grace, tell me when it's over. Why? I have enough of a struggle just to fight for my mind's purity. I don't need any more fuel for that fire. Paul continues, is it lovely? Does it capture your heart? Does it warm your soul? Is it beautiful to behold? Does it inspire you calling forth goodness and joy from deep within you? Is it lovely? Next. Is it admirable? Admirable meaning does its reputation precede itself? Is it being talked about and discussed in the far reaches of town? Does it have five-star reviews in a world that is so built on cheap quantity of how much you can consume? Is it of high quality? This kind of rolls into our next one. Is it excellent? Excellence here is more than just doing a good job. It's actually about integrity of design. 
is something operating so well, not just well, but actually at its optimal arena. There, there is something truly magnificent about seeing something done with excellence. I think of when my wife and I, Grace, uh, we went to uh, record in Nashville last year. And it was crazy the level of musicianship these guys had. It was out of this world. The ability, they would walk in, never having heard the song, have some chicken scratch written on a piece of paper, hear us play the song once, never have played together as a band, and then just crank it out. How in the world? It's mind-boggling to me. Are the things that we fill our minds with excellent or are they fluff and filler? I've been convicted of this recently as it relates to social media and just the entertainment industry in general. Am I consuming things that are truly excellent or just filler? Because our minds are like soil, aren't they? And we're going to reap what we sow. So before something has a chance to break into my mind, I have to consider, is this excellent? And finally, is it praiseworthy? Is it worthy of praise? We spend a lot of time praising things, talking about things, don't we? Is it worth the praise that I give it? Is it deserving of celebration? Is it worth the time that it takes to share with somebody else? Is it even worth their attention at all? I can think of so many past times that are just wastes of time. If it's worthy of praise, then talk about it. But if it's not, why even give it another thought? This is the eight-part filter that the Apostle Paul gives us to make sure that our minds are healthy and free. And let me tell you just why this is so practical. See, in another letter of Paul's, he writes about how the reason we get bogged down and imprisoned by our sin tendencies and unhealthy habits is because we've allowed something, a thought, to enter into our minds that was not in line with who Jesus is. And that's why he says it like this in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take captive every thought. Take captive every thought. Meaning, take every thought captive or be taken captive yourself. So this filter Paul gives us is basically to be used like this. When a thought tries to break into our minds, you don't have to just give in. Oh, so-and-so said something hurtful and now I can't get it out of my head. I'm such a failure. That's not how this works. Did they say something hurtful? Yeah, that's true. Does it hurt? Of course. But did I dwell on it? Did I give it room and attention to take root and to grow? We cannot keep a thought from entering, but we can keep a thought from staying. You and I cannot keep a thought from coming, but my goodness, we have power to actually stop the thought before it takes root in our lives. We have to do this by learning to examine our thoughts. 
examine your thoughts. See, the next time you're faced with a thought that you know isn't helpful, maybe it's some hurtful remark or some temptation towards sin or just the accusations that come from the devil himself, I want you to imagine Jack Bauer from the TV show 24 when he interrogates the snot out of a culprit. Who are you? Why are you here? Stop lying to me, right? Before we give a thought permission to stay, Paul says, yeah, but does it pass the eight-point filter? If it's true, if it's noble, if it's good, great, let it stay. If it's not, take it captive before it takes you out. Last week, Jeff made a statement. We cannot have right thinking without the peace of God. And that is true. It's also true that you can have peace with God and not be living with peace of mind. You can have peace with God and yet not have peace of mind. How many of us have our minds divided over so many things? running amok, spinning anxiously because we've allowed something to bypass the filter God gave us so it's causing our lives to short circuit and not operate at their fullest potential. Consider my dog Rory, right? Her crate was totally unlocked. But she lived like a prisoner because she thought the door was shut. And I'm telling you, that crate has no more power over my dog than your thoughts have over you. No more power over my dog than your thoughts have over you. And yet how many of us would really say that we are experiencing the fullest peace available in Christ? How many of us could honestly say, yes, I am absolutely and totally free from fear, free from shame, free from guilt of any kind, how many of us could really say that we are living in the full gift of God's peace that he has purchased for us on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ? I have a feeling that many of us, if we would allow ourselves to be honest enough about our situation, would have to admit that our lives Look something a little more like this. Yeah, Jesus won. 
yeah, we're saved, hallelujah, the blood of the lamb covers me, but is this really living? Enslaved to our thoughts that come and steal all that Christ has won for us. Consider your relationships. Are you trapped by the thought of losing the approval of those that you love? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your son. Maybe it's your boss or a teacher. But you're so deathly afraid. How has that fear of losing that approval enslaved you? How has the lie that you are only worth what someone thinks about you caused you to live locked away? Or how about the fear? Has that fear actually pulled you away from people? Can't get too close. Can't let anyone in or they're going to have power over me. So here you are, right, entirely self-sufficient. You don't need anybody for anything. You're entirely independent from everyone else, and yet you're deathly afraid of anything falling apart in life because you'd have to let other people in. Maybe it's not approval. Maybe it's not power. Maybe it's control. Control. Are you so afraid of what could go wrong in your life? Everything has a plan. This rigid discipline system that if X happens, I'll do Y. If A happens, I'll do B. And you follow it to a T because, but the thing is it leaves you perpetually anxious to the point that your body is retaining all of this stress and you constantly feel it when something goes wrong and doesn't go according to plan. So you've got back pain and you've got jaw pain and you've got cramped hands and stomach ulcers because your body is trapped by the thought of needing to be in control of everything at all times. Or maybe it's the pursuit of freedom that has you trapped. What in the world? That seems counterintuitive, but hear me out. How many of us demand to be spontaneous, never tied down to relationships, never tied down to responsibilities? We don't want any structure or commitments in place. And in the end, we are locked down and trapped by it. We say things like, if it's not authentic, if it's not organic, I don't want it. Really? You really think that only speaking your mind and opinion on every little thing, being guided at all times by the volatile nature of your own emotional roller coaster is the only real thing there is? You think devoting yourself to daily scripture readings and prayer or, or recurring financial giving is a worse alternative than spending time with the Lord or financially uh, giving generously only when you feel like it? You don't realize how trapped you really are. Yeah, but I'm free to do what I want. <laughs> and yet we're trapped. We're trapped by the whims and desires of our own deceived and deceitful hearts. The whole time we don't realize that the door has been left unlocked. Our lives will not experience the liberating peace of Christ if our minds are still enslaved.
our lives will not experience the liberating peace of God if our minds are still enslaved. And I have to wonder if there are times when Christ steps off of his throne and he peers through the clouds and he looks at us and he goes, this? This is what they think I died for? This is what they think I purchased for them with my own blood? Jesus died for so much more than the life we often live. I can say that for myself. How about you? Jesus has made peace with God and peace with others a guarantee for all who will live into it. So let me ask, what is one area in your life right now where you wish to experience greater victory and freedom in? What is just one area in your life where you wish to experience greater freedom and victory in? Maybe, maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's an inner struggle against an addiction of some kind or anger, or greed? What is that one place where you recognize, no, I'm living trapped here. There's got to be more than this. What is that area for you? Imagine. Imagine if the next time you're critiqued harshly, whether it's in a friendship or maybe it's a job that's on the line, so panic starts to ensue and because and, and a thought appears, right? I should just give up on this. Imagine there's the thought. What if instead of succumbing to that thought, you ran it through the filter? Is it true that you didn't do well? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Well, what's more noble, giving up or growing to improve? Is it admirable and praiseworthy to call it quits? Probably not. You see how this works? Let's try another. Maybe it's been a while since you and your spouse have made love. And so a thought enters your mind. Maybe I'll just look up some images or indulge myself with my imagination. Okay, there's the thought. What if your impulse was to vet that kind of a thought through the list? Is it true? Yeah, sure. It's true that maybe we haven't had time together in a while. Fine, keep going. Is it pure to indulge this? Is it admirable? Is this the kind of life you want to emulate for your children or those who look up to you? No? And then you don't do it. You cannot keep a thought from coming, but you can keep it from staying. The peace of Christ makes this possible. Choose your focus. Use your filter. Examine your thoughts. And so, what is it for you, that one area in your life where you are ready to experience the fullest, boundless 
limitless, freeing peace of Christ. I want to let you know, on November 13th, we're going to be having a suicide prevention talk. November 13th, it's a Sunday night at 6.30. It's going to be at the vault. It's geared for students and parents. But it's going to be open to the public, so really anyone sixth grade and up is welcome to come be part of this. But a licensed therapist is going to be there, and she's going to help us learn to recognize the warning signs and the risk factors so that we can know how to support our friends and family members in times of crisis. And the reason I requested to be the one who shares this with you today is because of my own struggles in the fight for my mind. See, maybe it's my artistic wiring, but I have been one given to extreme highs and extreme lows emotionally. I can be up in the clouds one instance and down in the gutter the very next. And honestly, very few people even believe me when I tell them just how low my lows can go. I take solace in the Psalms because I think David gets it. One minute in one Psalm, he's going, God, you're so good. You're always there for me. And like the next verse, he's like, ah, where'd you go? That's my lived experience. And although I can generally fight it off and struggle against it and war against it, there are times where it weighs so heavily down on me. I remember one particular season of my life. A few years back, it was just relentless. Day after day after day for months on end. And so after taking care to spend time meeting with a counselor, who interestingly enough helped guide me towards some of the principles that we've discussed today in reference to our text, here's what he told me. He says, Peter, just because you think something doesn't mean you have to act on it. Just because you think something doesn't mean your life has to be shaped by it. Fight, he said. Fight. Fight. Why? Because it's truly war. Fight because it's noble. Fight because it's admirable and excellent. Fight. 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 Some of you are in a fight for peace in an area of your life. That may not be your area, but what is your area where you know there's more that Jesus purchased for you than that? You know that Jesus has busted open the door. It has no hold on you. What is that area? What is that fight? If you are in the middle of one right now, if, if you're ready to break free from whatever thought it is that's been holding you captive, then I want to invite you to stand. To stand. 
And if physically you're not able, then just raise your hand. That's fine too. But if you're ready, right where you are, to stand free from the shackles that have been holding you down, I want you to stand. One thing that I love about Jesus is that when he saves us, he saves us into a family. That means this fight that you are fighting right now does not need to be fought alone. All around the room, there are brothers and sisters who are ready to join you in this fight. They are ready to join you in this battle. And if you are a follower of Jesus here today and you are sitting down, then I want to invite you to walk over to one of these beautiful people who are standing in the room ready to fight for the freedom Christ has won for them today. I want us to do battle for one another. And so if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus and you see someone around this room who is in a fight, don't leave them alone. Let's stand together and let's pray that God would free us from the things that have us down. Take time to ask them what's going on. To pray for them by name, that God would free them and heal them and intervene and restore us as only he can do because when it comes to the mind, the only way to experience peace is to wage war. So let's fight together right now. And when we're done, the band is going to lead us in a time of singing of our newfound liberation and freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Let's pray.